HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. For more information, visit brooklynslate.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria every Tuesday on Heritage Radio Network from Tuesday, from Tuesday, well, it's Tuesday, from roughly 12 to roughly 1245. Uh, we were joined in the studio by Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, but she had to take an urgent business telephone call, so she is out. Uh, I don't know where she is right now, but we do have in the studio with us today, Piper, Piper, Piper Christensen, right? Yep. Yeah, uh, and we are joined in the studio. And maybe maybe Stas left because Joe is in the uh, engineering booth today, and not Jack. And there's this you know new beef that Stas started last week with between you know. I heard and about Joe. this beef. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Like, I didn't you know, realize, but you know, it's okay. You know, we'll, we'll have like a East West Coast rap battle thing go on or something like that. Something. Yeah. Something like that. But yeah, yeah. you know. So, anyways, so don't have Jack. We do have uh, a, a newcomer in the engineering booth, Evan. How you doing, Evan? Great, how are you? No, doing all right. It's, it's, it's like, so, uh, it's the first time uh, to Cooking Issue Show, right? I do so. All right, calling your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128 with any of your cooking-related questions. We'll be here to answer your questions for the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, okay, uh, this in from Tony uh, Harian uh, from the uh, Mixing Bar in Brazil. Uh, you know, dealt, dealt with him over the years. I've never been to his bar because I've never been to Brazil. I'd like to go to Brazil. You been? No, we should do that. Yeah, but I mean, like they have like the great, like some of the greatest fruit in the world in Brazil. I have, you know, I have whole textbooks on the on the crazy different fruits of Brazil. In fact, I believe it's called it's not called Crazy Fruits of Brazil, but it's called Fruits of Brazil, and it's it's got a kind of a weird. I really love it because it's got a weird kind of like light blue cover, and all the pictures of the fruit are on this like weird grid system that's like light blue and like they're all crazy colors and some things they look like fruits that, i mean like honestly they're like they're, it's you know like uh, if you were going to come up with like an alien movie you would look for the fruits in uh this fruits of uh, brazil uh book and then the thing i really like about the book love it about it i mean is that uh it's very hard to get actually you can get it at the fruit and spice park in their gift shop in south dade and there's a couple of hawaiian fruit uh tree suppliers that sell it uh but the uh and it wasn't on the amazon when i checked 
Hmm, strange. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, what's awesome is is that it has a section in the back called exotic fruits. And you, you know what's in there, Piper? Stripper fruits? Uh, no, no uh, the apple. Oh. Because in Brazil, that, that crap's exotic. They're like, an apple? Wow. <laughs> apple. I think what they mean by exotic is not from Brazil. Right. Although now I have a stripper fruit going. When you were a kid, were you, well, you were, you're younger, a lot younger, confused by the fact that Striper, which sounds like stripper, is a Christian band? I don't know the band. No, no, no. Too young. Joe, you, Joe, you with me on this? You know the history of rock anyway? Not uh, the history of Christian rock, I don't think. Stri- I'm pretty sure Striper is a, is a, is a Christian heavy metal band. Now you'll miss, someone will look it up for me. Uh, okay, this in from Tony. Uh, hello, uh, Heritage Radio Network and Cooking Issues team. Hope all is well. I had a couple of questions for Dave about non-alcoholic cocktails for the next show. Uh, Piper, you can chime in here too. Dave, what is your opinion about the importance of non-alcoholic drinks on bar menus? In your view, what makes a great alcohol-free drink and what just doesn't work? Can you give a few examples of interesting drinks that worked for you in the past at events or at Booker Index, either high or low tech? And what are a few solutions that you try to use to mimic slash substitute for the taste or flavor a kick of booze in a non-alcoholic drink? Here's an example from Darcy O'Neill. So Darcy O'Neill is the author of uh, the book Fix the Pumps and is kind of the, you know, I would say, you know, one of the leaders in the kind of soda, soda jerk, soda pump, uh, uh, what's it called, um, resurgence in the past couple of years. And he's a chemist by trade. Uh, he has a, uh, an excellent blog called The Art of the Drink, which you should look up. And uh, Fix the Pumps is kind of like the, the classic small work, I mean, small, in other words, it's not long, you can read it quickly, uh, on, not small in terms of small in importance, because I think it was extremely influential, uh, on um, kind of reviving old soda fountain stuff. And uh, so, consequently, you know, he spends a lot of time, because, you know, the soda fountain movement went hand-in-hand kind of with the temperance movement, people wanting to go out and do things, and kind of have fun, uh, you know, in an era where they weren't legally allowed to go pound booze. Uh, and, And so... You know, the, the, the golden age of the soda fountain is kind of the golden age of the non-alcoholic uh, mocktail kind of a situation, right? Uh, so anyway, so I highly recommend that you go buy Fix the Pumps if you haven't already purchased it. Um, and he has an interesting post uh, that's pointed to just all you need to look up is cognac oil. And what it is is it's the steam distilled like wine leaves, I guess, from the fermentation that they do. And, so, and Darcy says that it's kind of like a really good uh, thing to add to non-alcoholic cocktails to give some – or non-mocktails or whatever. It's really kind of a bad name, mocktail. I always yeah. hated saying – I don't like saying mocktail. I don't like I don't like the term. I don't like that you're being mocked for not having the alcohol. It also implies that it's kind of an ersatz drink. Yeah. Yeah, it, it implies its own BS nature. It's bad. It's like it's like not a good term. Someone mm-hmm. needs to come out. I mean, every, the per- first person I'm sure who said mocktail was like, dude, mocktail, I'm so smart. Like a Piper, who's the king of puns, by the way. I don't know if he's going to bust any of these puns out uh, during the show. But, you know, Piper, kind of king of puns, uh, I, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's beneath you, right? Yeah, that's a little... Mm pedestrian yeah mocktail but i'm guaranteed the first person who thought of it thought they were a freaking genius and now it is de facto the term for a non-alcoholic cocktail because non-alcoholic cocktail sounds dumb too yeah yeah all right they're still cocktails yeah 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 well are they i mean shrimp cocktails Oh, good point. The shrimp cocktail. I haven't thought of a shrimp cocktail. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, no offense to the shrimp cocktail. The shrimp cocktail holds a certain um, kind of you know feeling, but the crappy, crappy pe- pe- you know, pre-packed shrimp cocktail, like horseradish ketchup mix, like of crappy shrimp plastered into a parfait glass, mm-hmm. is weak. Like I would much prefer to have a very you know nicely made cocktail sauce and then dip 
a well-cooked chilled shrimp into it rather than have it all kind of pre-glommed into a into a into a crappy glass am yeah. i wrong no i agree yeah all right so again shrimp cocktail maybe doesn't deserve the yeah. title either and just letting the shrimp defrost on the plate the cooked shrimp Ugh. oh you hate that, I hate that. What, do you, what about when you bite into it and you have that little bit of graininess because it wasn't fully thawed Ugh. What about the one where they thaw it in too much water and it inflates with uh, with uh, fresh water and then starts dripping everywhere? Yeah, it bleeds everywhere. Is that Gross. your favorite? Mm, I like it with eggnog, I guess. <laughs> uh, Piper referencing the fact that Nastasha and I do, do not like his eggnog. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so Nastasha, Nastasha back back in the studio, but still but dealing with whatever the the aftershocks were of the telephone call she had to deal with. Uh, hi, uh, hey, there's a mic over on that side. How you doing, Stas? Fine. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Everything okay? Uh-huh. Yes, relatively? Yes. Yeah, nice. Sweet. I, li- I like an everything okay. So here is Darcy's uh, recipe uh, for aromatic cognac syrup. Five ounces of de-alcoholized, it's, it's a weird word, right? Mm-hmm. De-alcoholized? De-alcoholized white wine. I like, I like to pronounce the extra H. I don't know why. When, I, when it's wine, white wine. I like to add the... I don't know why. Because I'm stupid. I think that's why. Uh, four tablespoons of wine jelly. Uh, four tablespoons sugar. Seven drops cognac oil, which you can get on the Amazon, by the way. I don't know the quality or not. Uh, three drops of chamomile essential oil. Three drops of green peppercorn essential oil. And two teaspoons glycerin for texture. So Darcy, in his post where he talks about cognac oil, and I recommend looking into it, is, you know, it's all about trying to mimic the mouthfeel. Uh, the aromas that make you think that there's alcohol in there, and then uh, some of the biting, bracing nature. Now, I haven't gone that far into it. I mean, uh, Nastasha will remember we did a we used to we were doing a skull project with uh, Nils Norin years ago. We got to we got to start that up again. Yeah, I'm not going to do that in my cocktail book. But Stas Stas thinks that when I mean start something up, that I mean like today. This is a, this is the people out there. This is the classic stuff that. Uh, this is the reason why I yell at Nastasha on air sometimes, and it makes me look like a bad guy. Because she'll sit here and make a uh, face like I'm uh, like a taskmaster ogre, saying that we should maybe at some point revisit starting an incredibly fun project. So, yeah, so that makes me the jerk. Anyway, uh, so the – yeah, big jerk. Yeah, yeah, fun, big jerk. Anyway, so uh, Skull Project. And uh, we had some – the idea of the Skull Project is is that you know we, we take pictures of people doing this uh, Scandinavian ritual, the Skull, where they do a cheers uh, with uh, Akavit or any schnapps, any drink really. They do the shot and you look in someone's eyes, you take the drink, and then you look back. And so we did these triptych pictures and it was fun. It was a fun project. Uh, but we had some people we wanted to Skull who uh, didn't drink alcohol. And so then one of our problems was, well, how do we mimic that? And our, our mimicked ones were kind of bad. We wanted them to taste like Akavit, so it was caraway infusions. Uh, and then to make that like kind of like, ah, doing a shot of Akavit, we added menthol to it, like menthol crystals. Remember a couple of years ago when everyone was putting menthol crystals in everyone? Yeah. Everything? We were, we were some of those people's menthol everywhere. Man, the people who took that shot... They made that kind of menthol face. You know, that <gasps> menthol face. I don't know. I didn't like it. But uh, so when, when we're designing, uh, in fact, we don't have, we, Piper and I have done some non-alcoholic drinks that we want to put on the, on the menu. There's a couple of things that you need for a, a non-alcoholic drink. Uh, it can't be as sweet as soda. If it's as sweet as a soda, uh, people tend to feel that they're getting a soda. Um, Sodas are generally in the range of about 10% sugar by weight, around 10 bricks, somewhere between 9.5 and 12, right? 12 is like a toothache, but if it, there's a lot of bitterness and flavors going on, it can be that high. 
Um, so uh, what you need to sometimes do is tone back the sweetness the, because most cocktails, uh, w- like they are in fact less sweet than that if they're carbonated. Now, a non-carbonated cocktail can be that sweet, but it's counteracted by the fact that there's uh, alcohol in it, which is going to cut some of the sensation of the sweetness. Um, so the issue is, is you want to do things on the dry side. That's why tonic water is so fantastic because the quinine in tonic water cuts the sweetness perception. Qu- tonic water is typically a little less sweet than, than – it's on the less sweet side of, of, of mixers anyway, rocking around 9.5% sugar by weight, 9.5 bricks for all you techno, techno freaks out there. Uh, so I think adding bitterness back. Uh, the other thing is if you can make something incredibly fresh, even if it would necessarily – kind of be conceived of as, as a soda if it doesn't feel like a soda because it's entirely new and different from anything anyone's had before and you can dial back the sweetness a little bit i'll give you an example P- uh, piper and i uh, clarified some uh, watermelon juice um a while back and uh we made a very kind of light and then we added lime to it uh and with the peel in it the peel adds kind of the essential oils of a fresh peel which takes it less out of the soda realm and into kind of the cocktail room did a carbonated watermelon soda that would have been good as a um as a non-alcoholic drink. I make a strawberry soda with freshly clarified strawberry juice that it has huge punchy flavors, but it's not overly sweet. No one would confuse that for a, you know, a commercially made soda, and so they would appreciate that the care and time had been made in, you know, put into it for um, for it to be kind of registered as something that's like a, a, a worthy of the same feelings as an alcoholic drink. The other thing is if you if you can tolerate small amounts of alcohol, like if if you're doing it just because you don't want to drink and drive, then you know you can add all kinds of bitters uh, which have alcohol in it uh, to like we make a hops bitters a hops tincture actually that you can add that adds like the real feeling that you're having kind of a beery thing to it without having a, a beer if you are if you if you don't want anything at all alcoholic that makes it a little more difficult then you can only do things like bittering agents and spices and not actual bitters and tinctures that are made with ethanol but I mean it's only if you're being very strict because the actual amount of alcohol you're consumed is less than you would consume from eating for instance anything that it fermented. Um, what do you think? Anything else, Piper, that I'm missing here? Well, I don't really drink soda, but I like sand bitter. So would there be a way to like well, that's make because a the Campari syrup? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, so like you know, like uh, so it's the bitter base of Campari uh, with uh, it's it's the bittering agent. Mm-hmm. What you do is is if you have the sweetness there and you add bitter to it, and all of a sudden it becomes more adult. And you know, it's like bitter lemon's a good one. It's kind of like a, a you know. It's kind of like tonic, but with uh, more oils dispersed in it, so it's cloudy, but it's got bitterness, and it's more grown up. It's slightly less sweet. It would be more grown up. Uh, so, yeah, so anything like that, like a sand bitters, or you know, make would be uh, kind of a good, I think, a good choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, if you just want a light, more lightly alcoholic drink, then go carbonate yourself some Campari and soda because that is delicious. Agreed. All right. Uh, next question. Oh, by the way, uh, if you're looking for cooling things other than menthol, we haven't done a lot of experiments, but you're going to want – if you actually want to simulate alcohol, you're going to need to stimulate the trigeminal uh, senses kind of. And I am not a fan of uh, Szechuan buttons or things like that to do it, but there are uh, sugar alcohols that can be somewhat cooling on the palate that you might want to use. And uh, things like cubebs have a cooling effect. There's also like you know certain herbs like tarragon can have kind of trigeminal sense kind of. Uh, but you, you want to mess with that stuff back there to give people the sense that there's something's going going on yeah okay um eddie shepherd writes in he has a new vegetarian uh book that he that on uh, on the itunes and uh do you have the uh, title of it stas i don't have the title of it no 
I don't have the title of it. Oh, here it is. Uh, it is a new digital cookbook on the iTunes called Vibrant Vegetarian. So I'll check that out. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, see what see what's going on. Vibrant a vegetarian. I have, I'm, I'm a fan of alliteration. Piper, do you like alliteration? Love Pun- it. Yeah, love it. Yeah, everyone likes alliteration. Do you know that in the old days, uh, you know, before um, you know English was polluted by the Norman conquest in 1066, uh, you know, English poetry, old English poetry, was a strictly alliterative and non-rhyming, uh, you know, thing based on a kind of a very complex structure of meter and alliteration, like old school Beowulf is. It's, it's completely unintelligible, but it makes you pine for the days when alliteration was kind of the way to go, and we still have that sense of alliteration in our language. That's why rap in Amer- in English sounds so awesome. You know, especially American English with all kind of our flat our flat pronunciation of everything. That's why rap is so amazing here in America. And when you ship it, I mean, no offense to MC Solar, but I mean, you know, French French no Not offense to French rap, but you know, you're not, you know, anyone with me here? I agree. Yeah, all right. What about you, Joe? You you with me on this? Can't say I really listen to much French rap. But yeah, mm. maybe uh, you can make me a mixtape or something. Uh, yeah, look, look, like you know, MC Solar Galactica. It's all, it's all good, but whatever. It's not as cool. It's not. It's not as cool. It's like alliteration. It's like it's why Beowulf sounds so awesome. What we got in your You know, it's like it's it's very like, visceral. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's yeah. like anyway. Okay. Uh, I, I think that's the first line of Beowulf. I can't remember. It's been it's been twenty five years. Okay. Uh, I don't know what the hell. How did I get on that? Oh, vibrant, vibrant vegetarian. vegetarian. Oh, here we go. Uh, the question I ha- wanted to ask is about dry ice. I use dry ice for a number of culinary applications for fast freezing, carrying aroma, etc. I also don't currently have access to liquid nitrogen. Pity, mm. pity, <laughs> pity. But in the UK, it's not all that easy to get hold of dry ice. It isn't widely uh, available, so generally you have to order it in reasonably large amounts, at least 10 kilograms at a time. That's uh, 22 pounds for you U.S. folks out there, uh, which is inconvenient and quite expensive. Get this, Piper. 80 bucks for 10 kilograms. 80 bucks. 80 pounds or 80 bucks? He says bucks. I'm sure, I'm sure if he's in the U.K., he has a little key set for a pound, so he could do it. He must have done the conversion for us. Yeah, that's nice. Thanks. Nice. Uh, especially if you are cooking for small numbers of people at a time. I wondered if you had any experience with producing your own dry ice for culinary uses. I've seen online that some equipment is available for making dry ice. These basically seem to be simple things which attach to CO2 tanks. Do you think these might be a good route for making small amounts of dry ice around a kilogram at a time in a more affordable and convenient way? Also, do you think something like these bits of equipment could uh, be made at home rather than bought? I know Dave is both very handy with this kind of DIY stuff and also a self-proclaimed cheapskate, so I'm hoping he'll have some tips on this. Um, all the best, Eddie Shepard. Okay, so what you're looking for here – yes, I have. Yes, I have done this. Uh, you're looking for something that works on something called the Joule-Thompson effect. And the Joule-Thompson effect uh, fundamentally is that most gases will uh, – most real gases, when they expand you know, rapidly and don't uh, give off – don't have the time to give off heat to the environment, uh, will chill. Uh, and in fact, um, so much so that you can convert uh, CO2 at room temperature to uh, dry ice. Because remember, dry ice doesn't want to exist as a liquid in at atmospheric temperatures, uh, at atmospheric pressures rather. It doesn't want to exist as a liquid. Okay, so uh, 
here, here's how here's how it works. Now, there are plenty of people on the internet who say that you can make dry ice by taking a CO2 fire extinguisher and putting a bag over it and then squeezing the trigger for a while and then chilling the stuff off. And you probably can make some dry ice this way. However, this is extremely inefficient process, right? So that what the what the items are, what you need, first of all, is a siphon tank. So in the U.S., they're sold as 50-pound CO2 cylinders with a siphon. And what that means is there's a tube extending from the top of the tank all the way down to the bottom so that the pressure on the top from the gas is forcing the uh, liquid through the tube and you're actually spraying until it depressurizes. You're spraying liquor up liquor liquid CO2 out of the uh, out of the tank. So that's the first thing you need is a siphon tank. Siphon tanks are also good if you're going to fill a lot of your own CO2 tanks. Uh, you know, it's good to have a siphon tank because it's easier to fill out of a siphon tank. Trust me. Uh, the other thing you're going to want to do is, is – well, then, then the, the commercial ones, you screw a brass valve on it that can handle the high pressures, right? And then that brass valve is designed to more efficiently uh, expand the CO2 and convert the maximum possible amount of it into dry ice. There's then a sack attached to that which allows the extra uh, gas to shoot out and then collects the dry ice as a snow in that sack. Now, there's various – you know, and that's the cheapest one. That's like a hundred bucks. That one, and then there's various kind of levels above that. That you, and you can make it yourself from the valve once you own the valve, and you possibly can make the valve yourself. But I don't know. I don't want. I haven't done it, so I don't want to get into it. But then they they kind of route it through a wooden box or a plastic box, and then the the dry ice impacts into the box and compresses itself into a brick, and then you can make a brick that way. And you, I'm sure that once you have the the Jewel Thompson valve scenario thing, that you could modify it from a sack collector because the snow is kind of a pain in the butt. It goes away quickly to a brick maker. Now, here's the downside. This is an inherently um, inefficient procedure. So, uh, first of all, you know, if you look, Frigimat from Bellart in the U.S. makes uh, all these makers, and they caution you that it's re- you're really only converting the liquid. Once once you're out of liquid, you're not really converting that much more uh, into dry ice, and the amount of liquid in your tank is not the same as the weight. So, at atmospheric, uh, a, a normal cylinder. Uh, at you know at um, regular room temperature, only like two thirds of that or a little more seventy percent of that is probably liquid, and the rest is is a form of compressed gas on top so already out of a fifty pound cylinder, your yield is down to you know seventy percent of that now take into that that on your on a usage base usage basis the best you're ever going to get is about 45 46% of the weight of the co2 that you spray out of it as dry ice so that's of that 70 less than 50% of it's going to turn into dry ice right the other thing is sucker's loud let me put this let me say this again sucker is not quiet you know what i mean because you're you're opening a tank and spraying it out as fast as you can it's loud i mean you've done that before piper it's loud yeah it's loud it's loud it's irritating you don't want to do it at a bar no. Or in your living room at night. No, it feels dangerous. Yeah, it's no, it's not the fun. Anyway, I mean, it is fun, but it's not fun for other people who don't think that kind of thing is fun. Um, and certain ones are are much less efficient than others. So the thing is, you got to figure out how much is it going to cost. Usually, on a fifty pound cylinder, you don't buy it; you rent it. And so you have a rental fee on the cylinder. And then let's say it's a fifty pound cylinder. At, let's say that seventy. Let's say you get a third of seventy. Uh, is like what's seventy divided by three, Piper? It's like twenty, like twenty five percent. Let's let's say you get twenty five percent. So a quarter of fifty, you're gonna get like twelve 
thir- twelve twelve and a half pounds of uh, dry ice out of a fifty pound cylinder. So then the question is, how much are you paying for the cylinder? If you're if you're paying, the good news about the cylinder is is that you could keep it there for eight years, not eight years because you need to rehydro test, but you could keep it there forever and then make the dry ice when you need it. And there's no sublimation of the dry ice when you know you, you make it when you need it. So there's no loss that way. But you have to figure out like what your overall cost would be to buy more than you need, have it sublimate, use it, and then have it go away versus you know you know you're going to get 12 pounds of, of uh, CO2 out of this tank and I was dry ice out of this tank and then is it cost effective and I just don't know I haven't done the math in a while but uh, I remember when I when I broke my uh, dry ice maker I didn't buy another one if that's any indication uh, and, but you know of course I had liquid nitrogen so there's not as much need here's another oh. thing if you have a walk-in free uh, fridge uh, you should before you make the dry ice. The colder your cylinder is, the higher the yield you're going to get out of it because the more uh, of the product will be liquid. Yeah, yeah. You have a caller. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Uh, hey, Dave, uh, Dan, Seattle. Two questions. Well, actually, one's a comment. Um, you were talking about fish sauce last weekend. Yep. Have you ever had the uh, red boat fish sauce that became available from Vietnam in like the last eighteen months or so? Yeah, I like it a lot. Okay, because you, you, you didn't mention it on the show, and I mean, I think it's much better than anything else out there that deserved one. Yeah, no, no, here's the problem, and it, thank you for calling in and mention. The reason is, is because the taste test that I had done was before that stuff was available, and then, so when I thought taste test, I just went back into my mind to the old taste test, and it wasn't in that lineup because it wasn't available yet, but yeah, that stuff's excellent. All right, I was just curious about that, um, and then um, my actual question, I made the full modernist uh, chicken soccer week or three ago, uh-huh. and it came out fantastic, but it took me a hundred years to actually fry all the ground chicken for the amount of stock I was making, because I actually, actually deep-fried it, which is my interpretation of what the recipe says to do. Yeah, that's it. I forget who originally, I mean, uh, I remember Wiley told me that, about that, and that was a protocol based on, that's like a 10-year or 12-year-old protocol from someone out of Europe grinding and deep-frying, but I forget who originally came up with the, I forget who originally came up with the idea, but yeah, okay, go ahead. Okay, so came out fantastic, but on a home stove, and I've got a pretty good home stove, the time to actually deep fry several pounds of ground chicken, I mean, it went on forever. If it, if I put the ground chicken, if I spread it flat on a sheet pan in the oven, can I get somewhat close to the same effect? Wow. And how much oil and time, and uh, your first guess at time and temp? Yeah, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sp- spread it flat so much. I think like the whole, uh, the the benefit of the deep fry on the grind is that you're getting maximum surface area of stuff that's browned, uh, and so I would kind of leave it flu- as fluffy as you can, uh, and then I would put them on uh, on like as many pans as you can fit in your oven and just pan them in. Uh, and I would do like whatever you know. You don't. You, the, the trick is you don't want to scorch it. So I would. I would probably do somewhere in the range of three seventy five, four hundred Fahrenheit. Sorry, Europe. I turned my oven in Fahrenheit. Uh, but like uh, somewhere in that range, and let the let the stuff roast off like you would a normal bone. I don't think it's going to require that much high. Although you probably could go higher because it's so small that. I mean the grind, but I, I would still stick in that range just because I don't think it's going to be necessarily beneficial to crank it to 500 or 550, and there's no reason to go lower. So I would I would be somewhere in that 375 to 425 range. If you have a convection, that'll help blow some of the moisture off and get it browning faster. Um, but I would definitely leave it kind of fluffed up because the whole concept of that recipe is to uh, is to get browning on the maximum possible surface area of uh, of product. 
I will give that a shot on my next go. Thank you very much. Hey, and uh, do me a favor. Tweet me in at, at Cooking Issues and t- tell me how it worked. I will. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Right, hey, you guys want to go to our first commercial break? We're going to come back from the first commercial break. Call the questions 278-497-2128. Cooking Issues. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeka. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn. They found a number of purposes for the slate and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. They now make regular trips to the family quarry in upstate New York to handpick their favorite pieces of black and red slate. Some of the slate is sourced from the quarry graveyard, a collection of odd-shaped pieces that were ultimately destined to be ground for use as road cover or baseball diamonds. They then transport the pieces to their studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where they do additional cutting and clean the stone to be food slate. Every single piece of packaging that comes with their products, from the envelope to the burlap bag, can be repurposed for other uses. The end result is a product completely unique in cut, shape, color, and overall presentation. For more information and to order, visit brooklynslate.com. Now through December, enjoy 10% off your purchase at brooklynslate.com with discount code HERITAGE. And we're back. I like the Brooklyn Slate people. We actually accidentally shafted them. They donated a bunch of stuff to the museum a couple of years ago, and then we had to tell them that that you know we didn't have our five hundred one c three status in order. So we love them and thank them and are sorry about that. Right? I think so, we told them they're invited to any event that they want to. So yeah, they're they're good people. They make <laughs> they make they make good good. I like Slate. Slate is a good product. Yeah, I mean, of course, Piper thinks so. He's from Vermont. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Vermont. It's the New Hampshire of next door. Oh, oh. I don't know whether you guys Arch. know this. People who people who like you know aren't from the Northeast of the of the United States might not know that you'd think that Vermont and New Hampshire, which are basically identical structures, like flipped and then stuck next to each other, like they look identical to each other, just kind of flipped end for end and glued together. That these guys they don't like each other so much. It's kind of like. It's kind of like they don't like each other. We're from different parts of Pangea. It's not. It's not the same place at all. I mean, like physically, they look the same, just flipped, right? I mean, Vermont looks like an upside down New Hampshire. Yeah. Or vice versa. Right. Yeah, and they're both literally right next to each other. Right, like a doppelganger. Yeah, but New Hampshire has no laws. Seatbelt laws. 
they have no seatbelt. You don't have to have insurance in New Hampshire. You know that? I didn't know. I don't. Live free or die, right? Yeah, live free or, or die. Turns out that whether or not you live free, you eventually will die. Uh, but anyway, uh, interesting. Michael Nacken writes in. Uh, he was enjoying the farm to toilet uh, discussion we had yes, uh, last week. He goes, Dave, love the co- uh, tissue cleansing through bowel management rant. You exceeded my fondest expectations. Well, well, well thank you. Uh, Nastasha and Piper. This is regarding their uh, overindulgence in Jerusalem artichokes last week. Uh, which, you know, if case you, you know, of course, you know, if you didn't hear last week, Jerusalem artichokes contain uh, a very, very large quantity of a non-digestible polysaccharide called inulin. And uh, when you eat a large quantity of inulin, you, you have painful bloating tooting phenomena going on for a good long time. And I, I was laughing because had they just read The Curious Cook, they would have known this beforehand, and both Piper and Nastasha for lunch decided to just inulin themselves like straight up the wazoo. Anyway, so uh, Michael writes in, uh, Nastasha and Piper, may I suggest you read Undaunted Courage? Uh, if I'm remembering it right, Lewis and Clark had to overwinter, uh, overwinter, overwinter with the uh, uh, Mandan Indians for two years in a row in the frigid Minnesota winters. They were stuck inside the teepees for months at a time, and guess what the main source of food was? Yep, Jerusalem artichokes. Can you imagine the aroma? Compared to that, the two of you were probably like a field of daisies. So you can tell Dave to quit his whining. Michael Nackin. Nice. Nice. He's nice. a good guy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good guy. Good guy. Strong. Uh, another thing, before we go any further, uh, we are going to announce that Booker and Dax is going to have the Kickstarter launch for the Sears All, Sears All, Sears All on Black Friday. That's right. For those of you that aren't from the United States, Black Friday is the day after Thanksgiving when everybody is supposed to go out and consume like wild people here in the U.S. for the Christmas season. And we have decided to put our Kickstarter on air for the Sears All on Black Friday. You, want, you guys want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, well, we're launching at uh, actually in midnight on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Well, it's not Thanksgiving anymore if it's midnight. Well, see, Piper's the guy that came in. Maybe this is a Vermont thing. He's like, so midnight, is that is that a.m. or p.m.? I'm like, it's, a, it's the next freaking day. Oh it's the God. next freaking day. My mom listens to the show. <laughs> uh, I'm sure your mom knows that it's the next day. I'm just breaking on you. Anyway, that, whenever I say anything, like Piper's like, my mom listens to the show. That's, that's, that's what he always says. What? I'm still going to feel like Thanksgiving at midnight on Oh, I agree. I agree. For, you know, as far right. as the human body is concerned, it's not the next day till you wake up. That's why if you pull an all-nighter, you, like your calendar gets messed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, from, from from a feeling standpoint, you're right. Regardless, we're launching it on midnight on Black Friday. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the uh, so anyway, and we're going to have it up. We haven't decided yet whether we're going to run it uh, to Jan one or whether we're going to kill it on uh, the 26th of December. Have we decided? Twenty fourth was what midnight. Was midnight on Christmas. Why would you do that? I don't know. You mentioned it. <laughs> no, I said we should have it run through. Okay. Anyway, know. it'll be on Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's what the, here, here's the story with it. So you know, for those of you that uh, you know, I don't know, uh, don't know. Uh, here's the problem: when you're at home. Uh, often you don't have access to very, very high-intensity heat source to do things like finish low-temperature meats or any, anything like that. So normally a lot, what a lot of people do, which I think is a horrible idea, is they use a torch. And when you use a torch, you create all sorts of off flavors in, uh, in the food that, that we, call it, we call it torch taste. Torch taste. Torch taste. And it smells like uh, products of combustion. And indeed, uh, you know, Ariel at UC Davis did some GC mass spec for us and showed that, in fact, you are creating 
creating kind of secondary compounds from the super high intensity high uh, heat flame from a torch uh, that cause these kind of off flavors. So we developed and have a patent pending on this little device that turns uh, the heat from a torch into a three-inch, uh, like infrared uh, radiant or not radi- infrared broiler kind of uh, that you can hold in your hand, uh, and so it makes kind of very quick work of that. It's also you know reheat pizzas, whatever, do whatever you want. Uh, melt, you know, gr- Piper likes to grill cheese with it. I like to finish steaks. It does great work on scallops. It's the only way I would ever cook foie gras ever again. I would never cook foie gras any other way ever. It's actually a higher heat intensity than uh, a salamander. It's more similar to a deck broiler. Um, but anyway, so we're going to launch this guy. And I also like it because, like, let's say in a restaurant, it's not really for, like, very like heavy-duty use in a restaurant because it's small and you have to hold it while you're working. We're, we, you know, years, we have a patent on the, on the technology. So, like, we could build a huge one that would be, like, the world's most insane uh, – you know, grill if we wanted to, but that's down the line. Anyway, but in a restaurant, like if something comes out and it's not totally finished right, you could finish it, like, you know, spot finish things. Or if you're on Grand Manger and you have like one particular thing you want to do, you don't want to like ha- be near a hotline, you can finish something right there. Or if you're doing catering events or, you know, you're out at a picnic and you want to, you know, just have something you can carry around and just put like a nice flame on some kind of smaller things, it's kind of a good tool for that, right? Yeah. Do you agree? Um, you know, and I like it better for things. I don't like it. Like, it's, first of all, it's more powerful than a heat. Like, the to- it, it pl- literally plugs on a torch. So it's converting a torch to this other thing, and you could take it off and use your torch as normal, or you can put this on and, and use it like a Searzol. Um, I like it better than – it's more powerful than something like a heat gun. Torch you don't want to use because it makes bad taste. Heat gun would be okay, but heat gun is much more kind of focused and smaller, and uh, it's not as, not as powerful. And the big thing I don't like about the, the heat gun is got a, to- uh, got a cord on it. I hate having to have cords on stuff when I'm using it in, in a kitchen. It's really irritating. Uh, anyway, so we're going to kickstart that thing. And have we agreed on the on the kind of what we think? It's we should not talk about price or anything like that, right? Not no, yet. We're not still until hammering it out. Still hammering it because the the deal is is that we need uh, pretty good insurance uh, for this. So we have the insurance, and we're going to have to go. Um, get it manufactured right now piper and i go down into the basement of booker and dax lab and weld all these suckers by hand and uh we don't intend to do that no we want to have the best product made that we can so we're still working on figuring that out but yeah yeah so anyway so we hope you all come by it uh and this you won't have to tweet me anymore and ask me when we're finally going to kickstart it because we're we're going to do it you can see it on al jazeera america i don't even know was it on that was it actually on yeah so. Did it look okay? Did you see that? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Oh, uh, hey, and hey, we started a uh, Twitter for the Booker and Dax Lab. Oh, yeah? What is it? At Booker and Dax Lab. Woo! And we'll be uh, posting some photos of the Sears Hall and the stuff we do there. Ooh, follow, wacky antics. Follow, 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 follow the, follow the at Booker and Dax Lab. Follow us. Yeah. Uh, what are you saying? What's going on? Hey, so Dave, I have a, I have a question in that's uh, basically, what does the trans fat ban mean for the mass marketers? of things like sweets and candy and all, everything that has lots of trans fats in them. Uh, it'll probably just make it a little more expensive. You can remove trans fats. Like, there's, uh, you know, like, you can go into the store right now and buy trans fat-free Crisco. Uh, it's just uh, probably, probably going to be a, a cost increase. I mean, I would say that's, that's about it. There's no, in other words, the transness of the fat doesn't uh, change the functionality of the fat. The transness of the, so it's, what, what, the, the deal is, is that um, when you um, you know when you remake and break double bonds, you can do it in in a, in a way where uh, where the the depending on 
cis and trans has to do with what side of uh, of a you know a double bond they the substituted chains are on. Cis meaning it's on the same side, and trans meaning it's on the opposite side. Uh, and so um, the cisness or transness doesn't affect really things like the temperature at which the fat melts or anything like that. Uh, it affects more the um, it affects more how your body reacts to it, and so the, the it's in the manufacturing of fats that they produce, um, you know, of uh, things like Crisco and other shortenings that they produce these trans fats. So all you have to do is then get rid of the trans fats or do another process to isomerize them to trans. And so all I can foresee really is a price, uh, maybe a, a price increment and not a functionality increment. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it makes complete sense. Okay, um, got a question in from. We talk enough about the uh, Sears all there. Mm-hmm. That's good. What about what's it called? Booker and Dax Lab. At yeah. Booker and Dax Lab. At Booker and Dax Lab. Who runs that? You run that, Piper? I co-run. Stas, we, we co-run we it. Co-run the it. Hammer and Piper. So if you need, if you don't want to, if like you know, Nastasha's Twitter handle is Hammer uh, at Hammer BDX. I don't think she ever looks at it. I do. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. And, and Piper, I think, has Piper BDX or something like this, right? Yeah, not getting a lot of action these days. No? Nice. All right. Anyway, uh, follow those guys and uh, for all the what's a who's. Anyway, uh, Alex writes in, Hello, Dave Hammer and the revolving cast of others. Jack or whomever else there may be there this day. Oh, what's up, whomever? Joe. Oh, hello. Yeah. Uh, Excellent show. Your efforts are greatly appreciated. I have convinced my wife that a kitchen update is a good idea. Strong. Uh, I am stealthily trying to put some more precise slash modern tools into the plan. We have a six-burner gas range, and I want to expand my options. My wife is reluctant to give up the storage or the counter space, but she is open to a flat top, perhaps even a 24-inch AccuSteam griddle if I can find one in good shape. Uh, AccuSteam griddle, for those of you that don't know, is, a, is like a sandwich layer stainless steel griddle that has water on the inside, and it has an extremely fast recovery rate. Everyone that has it in a short order situation loves it because the recovery rate is almost instant and everybody respects them and thinks they're great. The only downside of them is that uh, they they can fail because they're a pressure vessel and need repair and repair on an AccuSteam is expensive. So if you talk to people who don't make, you know, people other griddle suppliers and you're like, what about AccuSteam? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. The only thing that we can say is that it might break and then you're SOL. Anyway, that's just my, my, two, my two cents, but they are good products. Uh, while they look fun... Uh, and then can release my uh, inner short order cook. That's the AccuStream. I don't know how much use it would get in a world where uh, a fry pan or two will usually do. You know what? Another good thing to get any sort of like the problem with most griddles is they don't have a super. They're not really high heat enough, and they and they don't heat up quickly enough. In my house, I have a uh, an actual gas fire. The electric ones are garbage. A gas fired uh, Crampo's crepe maker, which is how wide is this? Eighteen inches. My hands. Twenty four. Yeah, it's somewhere between 18 and 24 inches, uh, cast iron top, heats up to, if I need it to, to 615, can throttle down to, um, you know, down to uh, low enough temperature to do pancakes or even lower. And it's super fast and it's fairly compact and it's on the counter, gas fired. This thing is awesome. They're hard to find here in the U.S., but next time you're in France, they're not that expensive in France. And you can get them here in the U.S., they just cost twice as much as they should. Anyway. Uh, I do not know how much I would get to use a griddle where a fry pan or two would usually do. Instead, I want to push – I'll tell you what's good on that uh, crepe maker is uh, razor clamps. Oh, oh, razor clamps. Plancha style. <sighs> razor clamps. 
Uh, instead, I want to push for a 20 to 35 pound uh, tube deep fryer. I've been okay with frying on the range top, though the small batches and consistently adjusting the temperature to recover them and then not overheat them can be a pain. So a better solution is sought. Uh, I have heard you mention that to become a master of the fry, you need a real fryer. True. Mm. True. My wife's concern is the safety, maintenance, slash cleaning requirements and how big it should be to be useful. Assuming I use a quality fry oil, and you should get commercial fry oil, by the way, uh, commercial, uh, what kind of life can I expect out of the oil? How often is it filtered or replaced? How should it be stored? Besides a Type K fire extinguisher, are there any other safety precautions you recommend, any features I should seek, any other advice on whether or not a fryer is a good idea? Thank you. Keep up the good work. Well, look. From a cooking standpoint, there's no question that a deep fryer is a good idea. It's unquestionable. From a cooking standpoint, let me put it this way. There is no question. Um, oil lasts in a home environment for a tremendously long time uh, if you, you, know, you, you fit, filter it regularly. Uh, I just keep it in the fryer and cover it completely so that it's not exposed to air or light so that you're not getting light-based oxidation or a lot of oxygen uh, oxidation in the top of it. And it lasts for a long, long time. And you can just test it. Uh, in between fries with a, with like a piece of bread to taste to see whether the oil is starting to get that cardboardy rancid taste. But because you're using a tube fryer and all the stuff sinks to the bottom, it's going to last a long time. Get a, you know a stainless steel uh, pot and you're good. Like the oh, the iron ones aren't, aren't as good for keeping. Anyway, here's the thing: your wife is 100 percent right. These are all completely uh, not necessarily safe in a home environment. They're not rated for a home environment. And let me put it this way: this might. Avoid uh, your homeowner's uh, insurance. If you have a fire based on having a deep fat fryer in your house, a commercial deep fat fryer in your house, your uh, homeowner's insurance might be void. Let me say that again. Your homeowner's insurance might be void. Uh, also, if you're not set up to battle a fire from a fryer or you don't know how to use a fryer or you're going to freak out if there's a fire, this is a dangerous proposition. I, I will point you at these YouTube things. Look up Mythbusters Water on Oil. Uh, fire, right? And uh, they have awesome slow-mo images of them dumping a cup of oil into uh, an oil fire and showing what happens. This is, by the way, why you don't ever have a deep fryer next to a stove because you might spill oil into something. And then what happens is is that the water instantly vaporizes. And if oil is – let's say you're – when you're using a, a fryer, you should never leave it ever. But you should never leave it unattended because you can see if it's starting to go over, over hot on you. If it goes over hot, if, in other words, a thermostat breaks and it goes into runaway, thermal runaway, once the oil auto-ignites and then if something like water hits it after it's auto-ignited, then you're misting it, it the, the water hitting it will cause tiny oil droplets to be at, you know sprayed into the atmosphere like a like a like a like an aerosol that aerosol will ignite into a fireball right here's the other problem about fire extinguishing an oil fire if you fire extinguish an oil fire on if you have oil that just spills out of the fryer and hits a heating element and ignites sure then you can uh, you can hit it with a with a type K fire extinguisher and it's not going to be a big problem. If you have thermal runaway and your entire batch, 30 pounds of oil, is at auto-ignition temperature and you spray it, what you're doing is you're spraying t- oil with the, with, the, with the extinguisher. You're spraying oil at its auto-ignition temperature all over your kitchen where it will then, again, ignite as soon as you release the uh, fire extinguisher unless you have enough fire extinguishing power to uh, like kill it completely and cool it down, which is why they have Ansel systems. And in an Ansel system, the goop that they spray out of your Ansel system is especially saponifies the fat so that it doesn't uh, reignite after it stops. And it puts a suppression blanket on top of your fryer for like 20 seconds. Please look up 
Pyrocam Kitchen Night 2 fire test demonstration, and for an extremely uh, boring, uh, they're boring, but you go through them, and Ansel R-102 suppression system versus dry chemical extinguisher on YouTube, especially that second one, Ansel R-102 suppression system versus dry chem extinguisher, and you can, it's really boring, go to the interesting parts, you can see a firefighter spraying a dry chemical extinguisher on, uh, on on a thermal runaway auto ignition oil temperature fire from a fryer, and the disastrous results contained. Also, for a good laugh, look up William Shatner turkey fry, because William Shatner has a safe... He's like, I love fried turkey. It's a taste. It's my taste. I love it. I fry turkeys. But then he has, like, the safety thing where they show, like, an entire, like, garage melting down from uh, someone putting a, a, a poorly thawed and or too much oil in it. So check that stuff out. Um, but anyway, yes, from a cooking standpoint, they're the best. Maybe Fair? Fair. Fair. Okay. Um, you have a caller. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave, it's Nathan from Richmond. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. Um, I've been reading this book called uh, Culinary Reactions by Simon Quellenfield. Maybe you've read it before? I uh, don't have. Do you have that, Piper? No. Nope, go ahead. Okay, so he's talking about turkey, and he wants to cook his turkey at a, a relatively low temperature, um, 96C, for a long time in the oven. Right. But initially, he rinses the bird with hydrogen peroxide, and I've never heard of anyone doing this. Huh. I wondered. Why does he bleach the turkey? Because he says he's going to cook it at a low temp, so he wants to completely remove the chance of any, like, uh, bacterial growth, especially botulism, since the hydrogen peroxide will break down into oxygen and help help keep botulism from growing. All right, Piper, like, all right, like... Tweet me the tweet me the name of the book and the protocol. I'm gonna look that sucker up and we'll talk about it. We still have time before Thanksgiving next week, right? Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I'll look that up. Hydrogen peroxide on the bird. You heard of that, Piper? Is it a is it a base? High peroxide? Yeah. I'd say it's an oxidizer. Okay. It just kills things. It's a yeah. It doesn't work based on acidity. It works based on like literally like ripping things apart. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever poured hydrogen peroxide on your on a cut, Piper? They don't have that up in Vermont. No spit. Ah, nice, nice. Yeah, so we'll, I'll I'll look that up and and uh, and we'll, we'll we'll try to see if we can figure out what's going on. I mean, I would pre- I would prefer to use kind of a slightly nitrated salt and get that cured taste rather than use a uh, right hydrogen peroxide. But I don't know. I'll go buy some hydrogen peroxide. We'll dump it on. A t- I don't know if I have time because we're working on the Kickstarter. But I'll, I'll definitely at least research it. Piper will have me research it. And we'll get back to you next week. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Dave. All right, thank you. Um, all right. Alex in Toronto writes in, Dear Cooking Issues team, uh, any uh, recipes involving powdered gelatin consistently ask that first be hydrated, then heated up? Two questions. As long as there's enough water, won't the gelatin hydrate as it heats up anyway? And two, to what temperature uh, must one heat the mixture in order to melt the said gelatin? Thanks and keep up the good work, Alex in Toronto. Actually, they don't tell you to add uh, to the cold water to hydrate it. They're, they're putting you in to, to swell it so that it can disperse easily before you hydrate it. What they're worried about is that you add the gelatin powder to a hot liquid and it forms clumps that then take a lot longer to dissolve. The reason that doesn't happen in jello powder uh, is because there's so much sugar separating the gelatin that uh, it easily disperses in uh, hot water, okay? Um, but the blooming, as it's called, is not a hydration. Any hydrocolloid uh, that you use, and gelatin, even though it's a protein, is classified as a hydrocolloid, is usually a two-step process. Disperse, which is what you're doing with the blooming process, getting them swollen but yet not glued together, uh, and then hydration by heating. And uh, gelatin hydrates what, like what, 140, something like that, Fahrenheit? Somewhere like that? It's pretty low. Something like that. 
I just do it by eye. I've never actually measured it. It probably depends on the gelatin. I just do it by eye. Yeah. Anyway, there. That's your answer. Uh, Patrick. Uh, Patrick writes in on ham. Dear cooking issues gang, I'm thinking of trying to cure ham in a location in upstate New York, whose low and sometimes high temperatures dip below the freezing point for one quarter to one third of the year. This excludes a completely ambient curing and aging process, but I'm thinking of providing just enough heat to keep the temperature above freezing to do a semi-ambient ham, and then let it age for a long time, at least over two summers, where the temperatures are still still relatively mild. I don't have a desire to produce a facsimile of another place's ham, but instead want to do something that stands on its own. Do you think? in general this is an okay idea or is it that it's not, simply not a good idea to do a semi-ambient ham most likely unsmoked outside of the traditional ham belt climate zone you described before completely ambient seems out of the question also are there any detailed references in English you would suggest for ham curi- uh, curing I have a copy of Fidel Tolger's dry cured meat on the way and Paul Bertoli's cooking by hand has a really good description of his own prosciutto method not looking to replicate other processes but make a country ham that tastes like its own unique climate and geography all the best Patrick okay listen look this up uh, dry curing Virginia style ham, Virginia Cooperative Extension by Norman Marriott. It's about Virginia ham, but it talks about the general procedure, how to pick out a ham properly for curing. Uh, although you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of his trimming procedures, but it goes into salt levels uh, and things like this. And he actually is an advocate of the bag style cure, uh, and it's probably good uh, for curing small amounts of ham rather than the uh, box cure where you're layering lots of hams on top of each other. The bag cure, you add the specific amount of salt you need to the particular ham, wrap it, and then you know. You overhaul it a couple of times, but it's you know uh, easier to, to get to get right. I think that you have a good idea. I don't think it's going to be a problem uh, as long as you keep it from freezing. If you have it in a semi-controlled place, and you got to remember, a lot of the smoked hams uh, that you know we have you know over time come from more northerly places where freezing is a possibility, and so things were hung near fires to keep them from uh, freezing, among other things. Uh, and so I think that should that should work great. And I'm looking, you know. I'd, I'd love to try an upstate New York style ham, semi-ambient. Just semi-ambient ham. Yeah, but remember your your aging temperatures. Like the reason that the country hams, my feeling is, taste the way they do. Southern country hams is the very high humidity, uh, high uh, temperatures that they experience in the summertime. Uh, and most of your aging, uh, most of the kind of funkiness from aging is going to happen during uh, the uh, summertimes. Okay, uh, last week we had in uh, a caller asking about sodium ferrocyanide in salt. Uh, and uh, Elliot Papineau wrote in with the, uh, with the uh, actual th- sheet from Morton saying that there can indeed be there. But it's not going to hurt you. First of all, sodium ferrocyanide, it's not 2%. It's uh, 20 milligrams per kilo of salt is the maximum allowable amount in, uh, in the European standards anyway, which is like 0.00. I have to do the math, but it's like 0.0002% uh, of, of uh, sodium uh, ferrocyanide. And sodium uh, ferrocyanide, ferrocyanide is a, is a bunch of cyanides glued around a, an iron uh, atom. And the iron bonds so well with the cyanide that it takes an acid stronger than stomach acid to release hydrogen cyanide gas. And so sodium ferrocyanide is relatively non-toxic. Uh, you need to consume a whole bunch of it for, uh, for it to hurt you. And there is not – and it's – you know, it, and there's not that much of it in there anyway, but indeed it is there. So it's – remember, it's not 2 percent. It's 20 milligrams per kilo, which is very, very, very low. Um, Chris, uh, Chris Kohler uh, writes in uh, – it's, it's written like – Collar, like holler, like Chris Collar, but it's co- but it's Collar. Anyway, uh, two questions pertaining to bread and proofing dough. I've been making Levant style bread for about six months now, and continually amazed with how long it lasts. 
uh, last being quantified in days without drying out, molding, or showing significant drops in quality. My first assumption was uh, that this bread is 77% hydrated and that uh, that's playing a role in it lasting longer. I recently did a, a side-by-side of 77% Levain bread and 77% hydrated no-knead bread with commercial yeast and a traditional kneaded bread at 77% hydration with commercial yeast. All three breads were made in a standard country-style loaf. The bread made with the Levain was a clear winner and lasted a week with a slow decline in quality. The kneaded bread lasted for four days and the no-knead bread was shot after two. Any thoughts on what's going on? And uh, as a follow-up, I recently got a wood-fired oven and I'm trying to convert a mini fridge into a proofing chamber so I can hold pizza dough at 65 Fahrenheit for extended pe- uh, periods of time. I can't imagine this being too difficult, but the scope of my scientific knowledge is in the world of medicine, not engineering. Thusly, I'm often intimidated by the smallest electrical projects. Thanks for the help, Chris uh, Kohler. Uh, so, uh, as far as uh, the first thing, yes, the sourdough technique, especially on whole grain breads like Levant, it, uh, is has a, um, a radical uh, effect in a positive way on the staling properties of um, of doughs. I point you to this article in uh, Food Microbiology from 2007 called The Impact of Sourdough on the Texture of Bread. And uh, there's a couple things going on. Uh, the acidity from a sourdough starting is a Cause, directly causing some of the anti-staling uh, things by uh, how it uh, affects the way enzymes are breaking down starches during the fermentation process and also probably due to their effect on the gluten in general, which they say can affect staling, although I'm not exactly sure how. I'd have to go reread the whole article. The other thing is is that the lactic acid bacteria uh, that are growing in a sourdough starter make their own extracellular uh, cellular polysaccharides, which can lead, towards, uh, can lead towards anti-staling effects and also break down other things like proteins and other things that are more present in uh, whole grain breads. And so a sourdough plus a whole grain bread is probably vastly superior from a staling technology. But uh, just go read The Impact of Sourdough on the Texture of Bread. Um, I went to go look for uh, my copy of The Bread Builders, which I think also, even though it might be out of date, is a very good book on that style of bread. But it's already been packed because I'm moving very soon. Um, anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, John writes in, and I guess this will have to be our last one, right, because we're getting, we're getting kicked off the air in a second. Uh, John writes in, uh, hey, Dave, Nastasha, and the crew, I had a question about ginkgo, specifically the evil female tree. For a while, my wife and I have had a ginkgo on our block and did collect the seeds for a brief moment to dry out the seeds for a Chinese dish we wanted to try. But unfortunately, soon after the process of separating the softer flesh of the seed from the inner seed, we found during the process that the fruits contain uh, – I can't pronounce it. I can't pronounce anything. Urushurol, the stuff from, from, uh, well, from, from uh, poison ivy. Uh, Urushurol. I can't pronounce it. Anyway, uh, contains that – Uh, which made for very unpleasant few days following. That tree is long gone, but I do see a lot of the trees dropping their stink seeds around New York City uh, now and was wondering if I was brave or crazy enough to brave the stench and collect them again. Is there a way to neutralize uh, the the dermatologically uh, impaired product, which I will not try to pronounce again, before trying to get the seeds to avoid getting poison oak side effects again? While the fresh seeds were good, I am not sure the risk or effort involved is better than the ones you pick up in a Chinatown, aside from knowing their origin and processing uh, and processing them yourself compared to the industrial variety thanks hope all is well john okay look so in fact uh look urushirol however you pronounce it is actually that technical thing is only from that family the anacardis anacardaceae which is like mangoes and poison ivy and 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 whatever i looked this up i didn't know that this was in ginkgo and again my my book on uh poison ivy problems which i I have a couple actually but they're already because i'm fascinated with trees and stuff now uh have been uh packed away already for the move so i couldn't go look look that up but it turns out that ginkgo 
uh, has a related uh, compound in it um, that can cause dermatitis but doesn't necessarily cause it for everyone. So in other words, some people who are – because I'm highly allergic to poison ivy, but I've smashed ginkgo seeds this year in fact and haven't gotten any any problems. Here's the other problem, something you mentioned. First of all, ginkgos are unrelated to any other living extant tree. They are they are kind of their – alone in their group. They're usually classified with the conifers, but they're kind of like a living fossil. And they're only really wild in China, but they were brought over and extensively cultivated in other places, including here in New York City. Uh, it's an interesting tree. It's, uh, it's, it, trees are either male or female, unlike many trees which have male and female parts on the same tree. Uh, there's only male trees and female trees, and, a, and the female trees produce stinky, 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 stinky ginkgo nuts, which is why most people who cultivate them only cultivate the males. Uh, but you can, here in New York City, I can verify this from my own personal experience. Fine. In fact, there's one right outside of MoFat offices. There's a female tree that was dropping its nuts. These nuts. And, and uh, you pick it up. And it's not really it's a you know it's a seed anywho but you break it and it you smell homeless uh, and you can't wash the homeless smell after because of the intense concentration of butyric acid on it. Now I did not know that it also contained an irritant, but in fact it, it does. Uh, and so uh, I will. Uh, did I write it down? I, there's a. I will try to look more into whether or not there's any way to actually stop yourself other than gloves. Uh, I mean gloves, right? Gloves. Uh, Gloves, but I, I don't think of any. I haven't found anything that specifically inactivates it. I was reading an article on the uh, preventing of occupationally related contact dermatitis, but and that came up when I searched for ginkgo, but I wasn't able to find the specific ginkgo reference that kind of how to work around it. But man, if you can brave that stench, first of all, the fact that you put that stuff on your hands with the smell because it's so hard to wash out of your hands. I was sitting there washing for like so long to get the stink out. Uh, there are things called barrier creams that uh, are given to forest rangers and people who trek out that are supposed to stop uh, poison ivy from penetrating the skin, and maybe that would work here. But man, I mean, I would collect and then, you know, maybe they use some sort of fermentation to get the pulp off instead of pulping it by hand. I will look it up. I will look it up uh, and, and tell you, John, because it's, I'm kind of curious about it. Oh, it's too late in the season for us to collect ginkgo. Can you imagine if I brought all those ginkgo nuts back to the lab and was stinking up that lab with butyric acid, like smelling like vomity, vomit, vomit, vomity, vomit? I can't imagine what that would be like. I think it's, I think there's other stinky stuff in there because it smells worse than just vomit. It's like vomit plus not washed. It's like unwashed vomit. It's like it's like it's like you didn't wash for a week. You spent your first 20 bucks on the cheapest liquor you could get, drank it, and then puked it on yourself, and then just fell asleep dozing in the hot sun. That's what it smells like to me. Anyway, uh, we'll look it up, and we'll get back to you. Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.